Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're here back again, April 10th. Uh, yet another brief hiatus, but um, it's a Saturday evening. And as they say, Saturdays are for the boys. And maybe now they're for the gentlemen. I like that. Shall we uh, Shall we start? What are we, uh, what are we getting into tonight? Yeah, Saturday night, back in person. I'm excited to be back with you. We got three topics this week. We're going to start by looking at uh, the infrastructure proposal that President Biden laid out in the past week uh, before doing a deep dive into the the voting law that passed in, in Georgia uh, 10 days ago now. Um, it's been in the headlines this past week as Major League Baseball decided to remove the All-Star game that was scheduled in Atlanta. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what's actually in the bill, the reaction to the bill, the reaction to the reaction, and, and all of that. And we're going to wrap up by um, taking a look at where we stand as a country in terms of the coronavirus and the vaccination process, um, something we haven't looked at in a little bit. So uh, those are the three topics this week. But before we get into all that, we want to remind you guys that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking men at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. The guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you, there is nothing more patriotic than buying local. Indeed. Indeed not. All right. So where are we getting started here? Yeah. So President Biden uh, this past Wednesday put forth a $2 trillion investment proposal. Uh, the investment is uh, into the nation's roads, the waterways, the airports, the electric grid, broadband. Uh, it's it's a, another massive spending bill um, coming on the, on the heels of... Uh, the, the previous relief bill that checked in at $1.9 trillion, this one is has a similar price tag on it. Uh, and it's something that you and I have been asking for for a while. It's something I think a lot of people have been asking for for years, for several administrations, I would say. And President Biden is, is going to try to deliver what people have been asking for. So I uh, want to take a look at, we know that this proposal is going to, or probably going to change a, a good amount before or if it actually gets passed. Uh, but let's take a look at some of the things that you know Biden's proposing um, and, and see what you think of those. So like I said, it, the, the price tag on it's about $2 trillion. Uh, big ticket items, about $621 billion investment in transportation resilience. Uh, and that is, what that means is it's making our, our grid, our, I guess infrastructure for lack of better words, um, potentially more resilient to the types of weather events that have become increasingly, you know, increasingly prevalent in our country that we talked about back, um, I think episode 19, when we talked about Texas. Um, and, and so 621 billion looking at trying to make our infrastructure, uh, you know, able to better hand up, hand, like stand up to and withstand these uh, uh, severe weather events um, that, 
know, maybe are increasing due, due to a lot of the climate change issues that we have. Um, $400 billion for expanding access to care for aging for the elderly and those with disabilities. This is what like the Biden administration is calling, quote unquote, the care part of the infrastructure bill. Um, those include like long-term care services covered by Medicaid, um, expanding like home and community-based services. So that's the first trillion dollars. Um, and then some of the quote unquote smaller ticket items would be 100 billion in workforce development programs, 100 billion in expanding high-speed broadband access, 100 billion in building a more resilient like electric grid, 200 billion uh, to build and retrofit uh, affordable housing, uh, places for people to live, 100 billion in upgrading and building new public schools, then uh, smaller 10 billion to modernize and upgrade federal buildings, uh, 18 billion to uh, modernize the Veterans Affairs, 12 billion for community college, 25 for childcare facilities, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, climate change is, is addressed throughout the proposal. Uh, there's about $175 billion within these proposals to quote unquote like win the, the EV, the electrical, electronic vehicle uh, market, um, encouraging automakers to, to like retool their supply chains and those sorts of things to make sure that they're producing more electrical cars, that there are charging stations uh, for those electrical cars, uh, $50 billion to like to kind of beef up the, the highways, uh, $35 billion to to do actually just direct research into climate science. So th there's, I've thrown a lot of numbers at you. What stands out either big picture wise or anything on those smaller proposals? Yeah, um, I think I'll start big picture. I, I think it's it's interesting that we've, how, how quickly I, I feel like the hockey stick of these proposals and the price tags has um, escalated over maybe the last two decades. Like, I want to say that in the 2000s, if you heard a proposal that was going to cost in the billions of dollars, you would be like, holy, you know, right. you know what? And that, that sounds like a, a, an exorbitant amount of money. And now it feels like we don't talk about anything unless we're it starts with a with a trillion at the front of it, um, which just I, I just kind of goes to show uh, perhaps, you know, in part the scale of the things that we're talking about, but also. A, a little bit of a running theme or a running joke here like just like what is what is right. money even yeah, anymore yeah. um but i say that probably not um disparagingly in that i these are the types of things that i think the federal government is like absolutely best suited to do um when i think about you know our reliance on capitalism to sort of deliver solutions that everyday people need um i think these types of areas infrastructure is where they just fall short because it's very difficult to create like that financial incentive um or that sort of profit incentive to get somebody to like rebuild a highway that's kind of working but definitely not optimal or increase broadband access in rural areas which you know, I think we all know benefits everybody as a society, but doesn't really benefit any individual in a way that you could kind of sort of match a profit incentive mm -hmm. um, to deliver these types of solutions. I think certainly we're going to hear arguments about what is necessary and what is not necessary. I think it's probably wise to start 
very, very big. I'm very curious to know how they come up with the like, oh, we need two hundred billion for this or six hundred right. billion right. for that. Like right. what what they possibly could have put together for a proposal to come up with that um, would definitely interest me. Uh, but on the I think by and large, I'm happy to see this. And I'm hopeful that because infrastructure investments is something that Trump had talked about, that maybe there is an opportunity for some compromise here. Yeah, like like you say, it's something that only Trump had talked about, but Obama had talked about. And it's honestly, it's desperately necessary and something that you and I have agreed on and have sought as like what hopefully could be, should be some bipartisan support to put this together because it, it helps such a wide swath of, of people and it, it's everything it, it's all those things that you that we take for granted with our bridges and our roadways and our electricity and our internet service and all all of these things that we just think are, are there but i think anybody out there that has been in the world over the past few years can see that a lot of those structures are deteriorating and you see a lot of dates on some of these key bridges that are like the early 1900s late 1800s and even like unseen things like uh the nation's like water infrastructure was largely done in like the 1800s and uh, there's parts of it that we still have like lead pipes and service lines even though we know that those have like devastating effects on on any people but especially on children uh and biden's plan is plans to address a lot of those things and there are things that are helpful not only for you know minorities or liberals but they're helpful for people living in cities and living in rural areas and living all across the country and uh i want to get into like the republican reaction to it in a minute but uh with with the price tag itself it like you said it's it's kind of mind-blowing like we're just going to continue to spend trillions of dollars but biden and his administration have really taken like like the the monkey's out of the bottle at this point, right? You can't put it back in. Like if, at this point, we've been spending both on the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration. Like if we're, we've already thrown trillions of dollars at issues, coronavirus issues, economic issues over these past few years, and it doesn't seem like there's any desire to go back to the Obama years, perhaps the Bush years, where it was more like, hey, you're not going to spend this unless you can pay for it. And there was a real like the the budget hawks and making sure. And full transparency, I was one of those people. <laughs> I think I still am one of those people, but you've been saying for months on this podcast, like, it doesn't seem to matter. And all of those things that I was, you know, potentially afraid of, of owing uh, you know, uh, too high of a percentage of our GDP, especially to other countries like China, Japan, whomever, uh, the risk of inflation by just throwing trillions of dollars in the economy, like, these fears really haven't come to pass. And so I think Biden, Democrats, like the administration is just saying that like well why not keep throwing money at this yeah and i i think i think it's interesting because as a liberal or a progressive like it it never for years the conversation has never been like oh rather than figure out how to pay for it why don't we just spend the money and then that'll be that we'll you know we'll issue some some government bonds or whatever and we'll just increase the deficit and that'll be it it was always like all right if we're going to to do something we are going to increase taxes on the other side um and that has really been like the traditional push and pull between republicans and democrats over maybe the larger part of the last like 30 years call it um but that is yeah i mean i i also 
uh, just from like a, a very rudimentary understanding yeah, yeah, of yeah. economics would, would I both. Yeah, yeah would think that like that this is not a sustainable path but it's also you know you get into these habits of well like you know we spent a hundred billion we spent 500 billion we spent a trillion dollars and nothing happened so what's a trillion more that seems like a very dangerous like oh. philosophical like if individuals we can't do that right like when, when we do that and i'm sure you and i have both done this in our lives like oh we'll spend some money here and well oh well i already spent money on this so i'll spend money on this but like the, the, like the buck stops somewhere you know yeah. like the what is it like someone comes calling what, what am i looking for i yeah uh, i i don't like, i don't know what you're the, the tax man's gonna I, come collect yeah, at some it, point you know it. whatever the credit card companies come right. down you're doing yeah. right but that doesn't seem the united states government seems to be different than the individual so you're right but let's talk about a little bit the proposal for how we're going to pay for it so uh largely it's going to come from two areas it's in potent, potentially uh increasing the corporate tax rate which was slashed uh, to from 35% down to 21% under President Trump's tax 2017 tax plan, um, and two uh, by raising income taxes on wealth, inc- like incredibly wealthy individuals. Uh, both of those proposals largely seem to be popular amongst the American people. Uh, I know you know Senator McConnell said that you know we're not really up for a tax increase. If that's part of the discussion, then this bill's not really going anywhere. And I. I there is that element amongst maybe traditional conservatives and Republican base, but uh, Bernie Sanders wanted to get it back, the corporate tax rate back up to 35%. Um, Joe Manchin, who seems to come up in every episode, says, I think raising it just to 25% might be a good balance. Biden's current plan has it being raised to 28%. Uh, so that that's something we'll have to keep an eye on. But under Biden's proposed plan, that would raise $700 billion over the next 10 years, which is the two trillion would be spent over the next two years, uh, ten years. So that would pay for about a third of the plan, and then uh, Biden's would plan to tax uh, individuals making over four hundred thousand dollars and increase their tax rate, which was also slightly decreased under President Trump. Um, so that that's the plan to pay for it. Yeah, and and to Biden's credit, and something that we've talked about, he did sort of suggest that like. I th- he was like I you know we think that this is a reasonable way to fund these projects that we think are necessary, but on the how we're going to pay for it issue is something that he has already thrown out there that like hey if you guys have better ways to do that we're happy to 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 look at it and I am I'm interested you know if 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 Republicans are serious about working with this administration. To just sort of hear like actual reasonable plans that aren't just like, no, we don't need any of this stuff. So how we're going to pay for it is we're just not going to do any of it. Right. And you already kind of see a little bit of Republicans planting the seeds for how they're going to vote against it uh, because they're saying, well, there's some good stuff in here. Right. Like we agree with this proposal, the, you know, the proposal to, you know, increase the, the amount we're spending on bridges or that we're spending on building new public schools. Right. But oh, all this modernizing the electric grid, all this, you know, this money to go into uh, like climate research or for to fund electric vehicles or to uh, I, I don't know some like some of the other proposals like the, the care part of it like oh we need to spend you know 400 billion to improve you know, care services for the elderly that's not infrastructure so you already kind of see them being like this is like the green new deal or it's all of these like pork barrel democrat radical socialist wish list things that we're just throwing all of these items into the bill and i mean there's maybe some element of that but to your point there's the in my opinion the vast majority of this bill are things that would benefit 
the vast majority of the country. Yeah, and and in so many ways, it's it's just like we have as a federal government, you know, subsidized a lot of different industries and um, you know different specific. You know, we have agriculture, we steel. Right. O- over the years, there have sort of been different ways that the federal government has kind of spent money to bolster different parts of the different parts of the economy and the infrastructure package you know notwithstanding the fact that i think you're right there are some things in here that seem a little bit unrelated to it's kind of the overarching like theme of this bill like it's not even like a you know targeted towards anything it's kind of a broad like oh we're calling what is it the american jobs plan or something um so there is there is that element of it but it is yeah i mean I, I i think at the end of the day this is something that is is sorely needed that we have that we're kind of trying to launch into the you know the meat of the 21st century running on like 19th and early 20th century infrastructure and i think what we've seen over the course of history is that often like the cities that are you know you think of like tokyo after World War II, right? Like where it is today, infrastructure-wise, is in large part because it was raised to the ground right. and you had to build it up from scratch, but you were building it in the 1950s on 1950s technology. And it's very hard to spend money on projects like bridges. It's like, well, the cars are going across the bridge. Like, why do we need to build the bridge here? Like, it works. So what are we doing? We should spend it on some something else. And I think that's fair, but you do need to understand that at some point you're going to have to do this and it's seems far more even though this price tag is astronomical it feels more cost effective to do these things sort of preemptively totally than when agree. the whole thing couldn't agree apart. more because no one wants new bridge until a bridge collapses and right. people die and now i can't get to work and all of all of these things yeah. where it, now it affects my life right. and it's a tragedy and everyone's gonna say oh we should have spent money and fixed the bridges yeah but when it comes time to like spend the money and pass the bill and actually do the plans there's always other things that are more urgent and have like a higher pri- like higher on the priority list so right. it yeah it's, it's hard because until you like physically see something deteriorate and a lot of these things we can't even physically see deteriorate there's not as, as much push for it but the it's called the american rescue plan Sorry, and, yeah, and, and the american jobs plan right so it is it it's uh, a wide-ranging plan and and uh while you say uh, let's see how serious republicans are about working with the government i i'm also curious to see how serious you know president biden again has said the right things that i'm interested in having republicans come along here his past actions didn't seem to back that up in the in the coronavirus latest COVID relief bill, and now there's talk that we're going to try to pass this through the reconciliation process, which we talked about, you know, last episode. We're going to try to pass that through again, uh, which again doesn't seem to me the right way to govern. Doesn't seem to me to be the, yeah, the best just, way to do things. Just a reminder for yeah. folks at home that basically means that they don't need any Republican support. Reconciliation allows you to pass something in the Senate 51 to 50 instead of a 60 instead of 60 votes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so thank, thanks for that um, reminder. And the Senate parliamentarian who we've joked about before, who is in charge of like interpreting the rules, had said that budget reconciliation can be used to revise bills that have already been passed, budgetary measures that have already been passed. So if if <laughs> the 
uh, Leader Schumer and President Biden want to you know, revise the budget that was already passed through the, through the reconciliation process, they can do the same thing to get this bill passed. And so that's a possibility. Um, you know, Senator Manchin, again, has, has said he's not really in favor of that. I'm not in favor of that, but we'll see. And I, I, I think this is the one where before I was hopeful that President Biden would really seriously come to the table with the coronavirus relief package because I did think there was a potential middle ground there. And I was disappointed, as I've said many times, that he just kind of stuck to the price tag in his head. Uh, this is the one where Republicans, in my opinion, have to come to the table. Like the the public support for this is, is pretty overwhelming. And when like th these are tangible things that are going to impact people, it's going to provide a, a lot of jobs. Like a lot of these like renewable energy things are, they happen like in the middle of our country. They happen in states like Kansas and Iowa and uh, like broadband infrastructure in rural areas is like, is, is desperately, desperately needed. needed. Well said. Uh, and has been, that has with the coronavirus and all of the homeschooling, uh, we've seen it in inner cities where the, where the broadband access, the wireless access isn't as good in a lot of homes as I might've expected. I, uh, and it's even more true from what I've heard and what I've read about rural areas. And I think that's been a lot of states with rural populations have been pushing more to get kids back in school because they've realized that kids at, at home don't have access to these broadband things, which is still like mind blowing to me in so many ways that things that I've taken for granted for years that people don't have. But like these are Republican constituencies, like a lot of things in this bill are going to help the people you represent. And it, it's. I think it would be hard, not that it can't be done through the right messaging to, to vote against this bill, but you got to come to the table and, and, and try to make a good faith effort to get a lot of these things passed, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I two more, I, I think, quick points on, on that. To me, it's very reminiscent of like the rural electrification projects um, of like the 50s and 60s, like realizing that, yes, you know, when we do a broadband type infrastructure project, we can capture, you know, you'll see like AT&T, we serve 99% of the country. Right. And that's because 99% of the country lives in like major cities, but you get just outside of the, those, those areas. And there are obviously there are people um, that, that need access to, to broadband to, well, obviously needed first access to electricity now are again, needing access to broadband and when we think about just like, you know, going even higher level, that our democracy depends on people's ability to access information, um, access large, yeah. like different pieces of information. And obviously we've had true information, right? True, true information. Definitely. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it, it's got to start with the access. Absolutely. Um, everything starts with access. Every, everything yeah. starts with the access, right? So it, it could not be more necessary to put us in a position to continue to compete. I think one of the things on, I was just like looking on Biden's like yeah. fact sheet and like the, you know, third bullet in is like, this is so that we can compete with like China going forward. Right. And President Biden in that fact sheet makes the point that the United States is the wealthiest country on earth and 13th ranked in infrastructure and 13th isn't terrible, but like you look at the countries ahead of us and you're like, that's, we should be up there. There's no reason that some of these things are, are holding us back our possibilities back and it's to get into like a really large picture point it's like 
some ways that will never that are indefinable, they're intangible. We'll never be able to point to them and touch to them. But the kids in rural areas that for the last year haven't been have access to an education, how much potential is lost through something like that, right? When kids are become sick through drinking water tainted with lead through pipes that were built 150 years ago. Like there's no way to measure that type of loss. And a lot in this bill can kind of unlock that increase the the potential of, of our country. I, I couldn't agree more with it. Yeah. And it, it's coming at a great time in which, you know, issues like equity, um, environmental justice, like a lot of these issues that had never been, um, at the forefront of sort of these planning discussions. And often a lot of these types of infrastructure plans had almost specifically advantaged and disadvantaged different communities. Now there's this like heightened awareness for how we can do this with equity in mind. Yeah. And I think that that uh, presents a really, you know, a, 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 an awesome opportunity. Right. We talked just to connect it more historically to what you're saying, like that before this current era which i would really just determine like the last four months of the, the biden administration <laughs> yeah. really uh, it's the start of a different era you would say that the two biggest stretches and you've referenced them already are like lbj's great society in the 60s and fdr's new, new deal, deal in the yeah. 30s right but both of those were plagued with uh race inequality and uh like places like the places where you lived just got it differently and uh, both of those presidents had a lot going for them, but th those were holes in some of their, their plans. And uh, because there is so much, con this is where you say that some of the social justice stuff is really good, that it, it's become at the forefront of everyone's consciousness and looking through these bills and making sure that, hey, you know, inner city minorities are, are getting taken care of in this bill, but, you know, rural white voters getting taken care of this bill too. And it doesn't matter if you live in, you know, Oklahoma um, or, you know, Chicago, like th there are things in this bill that are going to help improve your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely going to be more to come on this as the yeah. bill evolves, as legislation does. Um, but so yeah, so I'm, we'll, I'm hopeful for it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so when we come back, I think um, we're going to start poking into uh, some of the issues that have been cropping up in Georgia over the past uh, few weeks. Georgia. Georgia, the whole day through. So this past weekend, we had my aunt and uncle over for Easter and happy Easter for everyone who celebrated, happy Passover for everyone who celebrated. Uh, and it was it was kind of normal. We're, and we'll talk more about the getting quote unquote back to normal uh, in, in, in a later segment. But it was nice. So I hadn't seen it's them. It's going to be the favorite phrase of 2021. Absolutely. Sure. I've already said it a million times. But I so it was nice to have them over. I hadn't seen them in over a year. And they had listened to the podcast, which was really nice of them on, on their drive up from New Hampshire. And uh, my uncle was saying that he found it really refreshing, which again, very, very nice of him to say. And he said he was wondering about my thoughts, our thoughts about the Major League Baseball taking the All-Star game out of Georgia. And he said, I was watching Fox the other night and, you know, I, I watch it and they're just, they're so right about it, right? They, they speak in just, you know, absolute authoritative tones and, and words. And then I flipped over to CNN they're talking about the exact same topic and they're completely right on it, but they have the total opposite take. And he was kind of like, well, I, I just, I don't, I don't really know what to think. I'm, I'm curious to what you guys have to say. And so we had talked about voting laws in general back in episode 20 
uh, in reference Georgia specifically, but this was still a bill that was you know in the in the legislature at that time. But it got passed uh, a week and a half ago, and it's been called like either like the epitome of voter suppression or the embodiment of election integrity, depending on who you ask. And it's like these two like depending if you're watching CNN, it's like this is the new Jim Crow. If you're watching Fox, this is exactly what every state should be doing, if not more. So we're going to try in this segment to break down what's actually in the bill. Then we'll look at the reaction to the bill's passage. And finally, as always these days, the reaction to the reaction. Yeah, um, I don't I don't really know where you want to start. But may, yeah, maybe we could just start with some of the key provisions in the bill. Great. So it shrinks the window for and I guess I'm going to start with there are some ways in which this law absolutely places greater limits on voting. And there are some ways in which the law actually increases people's access to the poll. So let's start with the ways it limits voting. Uh, it shrinks the window for voters to request mail-in ballots. So you can't request mail-in ballots as early as you had previously, and you can't request, you have to do it by a certain date, which is now earlier than it used to be. So that that's one. Two, uh, counties and states can send mail-in ballots only to voters who access them, who, who I mean, who request them. Uh, previously, especially during the coronavirus, Georgia and other states were just mailing uh, ballots out to everybody. Now you can only mail it to people who specifically request them. Uh, three, one of the more controversial uh, aspects, provisions of the bill, there are new voter ID requirements. And so voters who cast mail-in ballots will have to provide identification as well as voters who are voting in person. They're going to have to provide um, cer certain types of IDs such as like a driver's license, a social security number, or some something similar to that. Uh, there will also be a limit on the number of ballot drop boxes during early voting. So there's now going to be one per county or one per every 100,000 voters. Uh, those ballots, those ballot boxes now have to be inside, so they can't be outside anymore. Meaning uh, there's no 24-hour access. Good, good point. All right. Um, there's shortened early voting in, in runoff elections. Uh, there used to be three weeks. Now it's only a week. Uh, state lawmakers are getting more power over like county and local elections. I'll, the Republicans have like decisive majorities in the the state Senate and the the state House, uh, and so those elected officials who again are largely Republican are going to have more access um, and authority over elections than some of the uh, like nonpartisan election officials pre that previously did. Uh, or even the partisan like secretary yeah, of the state okay. is going to have a reduced role going forward. Right. Uh, and finally, the most controversial, there is a ban on handing out food and water within 150 feet of a polling place. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't really know what else to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where you want to start um, the... I mean, you know, we will get into a, a bit of the reaction and potentially overreaction in, in both directions. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing about this bill and the thing that's kind of so upsetting about it is just the context in which it happens. It like, you know, Republicans will say, well, there was a lot of concerns about the integrity in the election, you know, November of 2020. Um, which is why we are making these measures to give people greater sort of faith in the process. But at the same time, 
you know, there was like very little to zero evidence, well, no, zero evidence of widespread voter irregularities or voter fraud, um, potentially only small incidents of things that may have gone, gone wrong or opportunities where fraud could have been committed, but there was no evidence that it was committed. And to basically create a ton of legislation, um, one, I think it, can, continues to feed into the narrative that our election in 2020 was insecure when, uh, you know, all of the evidence and all of the lawsuits and everything that was reviewed points to the exact opposite. So we're solving for a problem that potentially did, doesn't exist. Um, and then two, Georgia is, you know, in the bottom half or like close to the bottom half of voter participation um, in the U.S. So when it comes to you know, bills or surrounding elections, you would think one of the things that they would be more concerned about would be how do we increase voter turnout, not use uh, sort of this type of legislation. I, I'm, I, you know, I think it is debatable as to whether or not this meaningfully makes it more difficult to vote. Um, I think that is a fair point if you're kind of arguing the, the pro on this. And yet, I think it, at that at the end of the day, it still misses the broader point that election fraud was not the problem for for Georgia. Great. So, a lot of points I want to get to there, but a few ways in which this bill might actually expand access to voting. Uh, there's a, now a minimum number of drop boxes guaranteed. There are fewer rural counties that didn't have access to drop boxes before. Uh, there's an additional early day of voting in most rural counties, and there are more resources for precincts so lines don't get too long. Georgia, um, and particularly in some of the urban communities in Georgia, is notorious for having you know, voting lines that stretch for hours, six, seven, eight, nine hours long. And so there is... Uh, the law basically requires the state to like monitor polling locations. If any have lines longer than an hour, then those precincts need to either put more staffers in or open up like a new polling place. So those are some of the ways in which like if you've heard if you've heard um, Georgia's governor Brian Kemp you know, going around like his media tour, he says he's making the pitch that this actually expands access to voting, and those are some of the, the measures that he, he points to. A few things were proposed that didn't make it into the bill, and I think this is where some of the real outrage stemmed from. What There was a, a ban on Sunday voting, which is when a lot of um, church, base. church voters, right? it was like a, like a soul to the polls, what they call it, and a lot of you know, heavily black churches, would that would be the day they'd go and vote. Um, and so that was originally in the bill, not didn't actually get passed. Um, there was... Again, originally in the bill, a ban on no excuse absentee voting, which also didn't get in. So, yeah, I, I guess to your point about this is solving for a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I, in fact, couldn't agree more with that. It, like, but the way the bill has been presented through, like, again, the media, which I always seem to be railing against, uh, is that this is a huge you know, a million steps back. This is, and President Biden called it this, he said this is like the new Jim Crow. Uh, and if you listen to, you know, some of like the the more liberal, like the CNNs of the world, if you read something like New York Times or even Washington Post, which I read in, in some cases, where it's the, the opinion pieces are saying that uh, these, that this law is racist, these provisions are racist, uh, and are designed to prevent minority voters, Democratic voters from, you know, quote unquote, stealing the election like they did in November 2020. Again, that's not a narrative that I believe, but that's a narrative that out, that's out there. So I guess my question to you is like, what, besides the fact that there was no need to pass 
this bill, in my opinion. I mean, that's not really from you or I to judge. If Georgia legislators, legislators felt like they didn't need to pass it, they're empowered to do so. What particularly about this bill bothers you? Or why, or maybe not even you personally, why are people so upset about this bill? I mean, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a good question. I think a lot of it stems from the proposals, many of which, as you mentioned, did not get in. Like the limits on Sunday voting um, were appeared to particularly target yeah. black voters yeah, yeah. who are getting turned out through these sort of church-based you know, voter registration drives and then ultimately like getting them to the polls to yep. actually vote. Right. And then, so there is that. And and then I think, I think the other part of it is that people are just skeptical and, and unfortunately for the state of Georgia, they don't have a track record where, you know, they should be like, well, just give us the benefit of the doubt. Right. We do these things fairly right through our, throughout our history. And I think it, it is fair to acknowledge that there are people in Georgia who lived through Jim Crow and Jim Crow did not say specifically that, you know, those laws were not specifically saying that we are not allowing black people to vote. Right. We know by the the 14th Amendment that essentially eliminated these kinds of restrict or restrictions on voting um, that or, you know, eliminated restrictions on voting by race. Uh, they came up with different ways to restrict the vote. And obviously it was far more blatantly racist um, the, like the Jim Crow laws, but at, at the same time, there was nothing in them that said you cannot vote if you are black. And so if when when people think about Jim Crow 2.0, their sort of feeling is that like they are trying to do this again and maybe we can't even point to it. We don't know exactly what they're looking at that says that, hey, if we uh, as long as we take the 24 hour drop boxes out and people have nine to five jobs, we know that they won't be able to access them on the days that they are free to go access them. So like we don't have to say that these folks are not going to be able to vote. We just know that their numbers are going to dwindle if we can you know, control access in these ways. So I think it is um, I think people are right to be skeptical that, hey, you're solving for a problem that you don't have any evidence that it exists. And so why are you doing it? And would you have done it if Trump had won Georgia, right? I think the resounding uh, belief is that no, if, if Georgia was still re reliably Republican in the Senate races and in the presidency, um, we would not have this need to overhaul kind of Georgia's election laws. It was because Republicans lost and they're feeling like they don't really have another avenue to, to win the next election that, and, and, that that this is that this is a method and that is the story that i think democrats are going to read out of it um i think for me personally it's the the level of transparency here like before like the minutia of how elections were run would never have made national headlines but it, it is now and so it really may if if you know the intentions are a little bit more insidious than just like we want to improve election integrity that you could see a very opposite reaction, right? A lot of people point to what happened to Stacey Abrams um, as a reason that black voters turned out at the percentages that they did in the November 2020 election. Potentially, you see that even more going forward because they are sort of more, there's just more heightened awareness around it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I concede the point that this is a bad look and that if President Trump had won Georgia or if... Um... The, the two Senate races hadn't gone 
Democratic that there, there's no way this bill would have gotten passed because there wouldn't have been the quote like urgency to get it done uh, to give you know, Republicans quote unquote like a fair shake in elections you know, that were stolen from them again heavy air quotes here uh, so it's a bad look and there were a couple things not only some of the the provisions that we already talked about but um, Kemp the governor signed this I don't know if you saw behind closed doors you see this picture surrounded by white male lawmakers behind him in front of a picture of a plantation while a black female legislator was knocking on the door and got arrested like come on guys like you cannot have a worse look than that like this is an embarrassment like public whoever's running public relations for the state of Georgia has totally failed in the last six months it's been a disaster all right so I concede all of that it's a bad look and I said this back in episode 20 is that I wish that Republicans across the state, across the the country, in in these various states, were not trying to pass all of these measures that ostensibly restrict access to people's, you know, people being able to vote under the guise of election integrity. Because, like I said, I don't a lot of these issues don't, in my opinion, don't exist. But like, if we went through the the major provisions of this bill, and there's nothing that really stands out to me as like really terrible about it and i, I guess i'm like the the ban on handing it out food and water within 150 feet that's another one of those things where it's like guys this is just a bad look like I, obviously people can bring their own food and, and water and the the point of it is so that like outside groups can't uh influence ex- exactly yeah. right um whatever that's it that should have been left in the cutting room floor because it's just a bad look but i think the big one is the voter id curious how you feel about voter id yeah, it's it it's it is a tough one because I I mean I think I think you know you sort of pull the everyday person we want the people who are uh sort of legally entitled to have the right to vote to vote and one of the easier ways to do that is to require some form of identification. I I you know I I can't I don't argue that point a ton except to say that we just know traditionally that um that communities that get impacted by these are disproportionately like every you know every one of our um sort of socioeconomic class uh gets their driver's license at 16 and a half 17 and never has an issue with it but there are tons of other people in different circumstances who don't have the same relationship with kind of the quote-unquote system but they're still citizens of the united states and until they've committed a crime they still should have the right to vote and because even after they've and even after, and <laughs> yeah, once yeah, yeah. they've you know served a sentence right, and all right. that stuff and you know, i would probably argue that they should have the right to vote throughout but you know that that notwithstanding the the idea is that when you add additional well one when you don't have evidence that somebody is like going out there and because we don't have voter id is able to vote ten thousand times and skewing elections like absent any evidence that that is a major problem it seems like you know it seems like this is a uh a solution right to a problem that we we potentially don't have and while intuitively it it's fine and and you don't like you you're not going to say that like that doesn't you know that doesn't make sense and that's the wrong thing to do in practice it has a different outcome and it has a disproportionate impact and we have to account for that and if we're not 
then sort of we're, we're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, it, that's well said. I'm in favor of voter ID, but uh, I acknowledge, and you, you said this really well, that it disproportionately impacts certain communities, this requirement. And so I, my solution to that would be let's make getting IDs easier for everyone. And a lot of the problem is that uh, IDs can be expensive. Like, well, even you know, $50, $25. Right. It's not something that everyone just has laying around. Exactly. And if it's not a priority for you, then that might not be something you did. I think something like 11% of U.S. citizens, like or like 20 million plus Americans, don't have a voter ID. And it's for a lot of the reasons that you said. It could be economic reasons, it could be access reasons, where if you don't have access, like we just renew our licenses on the internet, I think for most of us, right? But if you don't have access to the internet, like we talked about earlier, you can't do that. And there are not DMVs everywhere, particularly if you live in rural counties, or if you live in an urban center that you have to take three buses to get there. Like it just, there are access issues with some of these things. And I would have loved to have seen Georgia or really Massachusetts, any state make access to IDs easier for people. Uh, That should be something as a government that... (laughs) We shouldn't be placing barriers to people who are like legal citizens here getting like proof of their citizenship. Uh, but in general, I'm not against voter ID, but I, I do think it, we have to acknowledge it. And you did really well that it disproportionately impacts certain people. And uh, so for the people that are saying that this is a racist bill, I don't agree with that. Uh, but is it a bill in which provisions are going to disproportionately affect uh, poor people and minorities? Yeah, yeah, it is. But does that is that a distinction without a difference? Like at some point whether or not your intent is to be racist or whether or not what you do has yeah. a racist outcome, does it matter? Right. No, I, I would, like I said, I would have loved to have seen, it, w- w- this would have solved a lot of problems if you said, hey, like I do, I believe in election integrity. I, I think that everyone should have to show some sort of ID. Now let's make getting IDs access. There are say X number of people in Georgia that don't have an ID. Like we can, that's not a number that's particularly difficult to find, I imagine. Let's make sure we we reach out to those people and give them ideas if, if they're looking for it, whether or not they're looking for them, you know? Uh, that seems to me something that could have been a good fix to, to kind of balance out both sides of the equation. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say two things before I, I think probably we dive into sort of the reaction um, is just the similar point on the, on the drop boxes and taking them from outside to inside, like totally agree that you know intuitively again it makes sense that a dropbox outside that's open at you know has open access 24 hours a day means that you know it's more susceptible to somebody tampering with it fair but the flip side is you know one we we do have like kind of security cameras and we can it seems like we can figure a solution out to still allow 24-hour access but anyways that's one part of it but then when you bring it inside a, a building Again, now you're limiting it to hours that that building's open. Potentially, it's only open Monday through Friday, nine to five. And you know these again are are while it seems perfectly normal for people who work shift work or for people who um, are hourly based, like being forced to take off time in order to to make any yeah. of these yeah. is is just going to disproportionately impact poor people and in general poor people from minority communities. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, whether the intent is racist or not is, is less important. I think the the only other thing that for me is a little bit weird is, is how much of the power they wanted to take out of the secretary of state's hands. And it seems directly related to the fact that, uh, secretary of state Raffensperger did not kind of do more um also in air quotes he didn't find the votes he didn't find the votes um and that's a little worrisome because 
ostensibly he did everything that he was supposed to do as a you know as a person with some personal integrity yeah. and like why you know stripping the secretary of state of that i didn't i didn't hear any real justification behind that and i don't really understand um what the point was other than to sort of say that well if, as long as the legislature can kind of appoint the person that they want to run this then there are other sort of avenues like all right we're gonna also uh you know appoint different county officials and those officials are going to direct how we you know do a number of these different things um and and that to me is again like you can't necessarily point to the impact because like a lot of it is like you don't know exactly how you know what avenues they're going to find to potentially disproportionately impact different communities i think the main difference is today we just have a much greater line of sight into <laughs> how these things are doing uh, going and so anytime somebody is going to try and do something people will be there hopefully to to shed some light on it the fact that we even know that the secretary of state of georgia is brad raffensperger and we can just like drop that yeah, name top of our head it's like yeah it's probably a problem for Georgia, but good in the sense of transparency. Uh, all right. So as if the furor over this bill wasn't enough, once it gets passed, Major League Baseball takes the All-Star Game, which is played uh, yearly in the beginning of July and was scheduled for Atlanta, Georgia. MLB decides we're going to take the, the game out of Georgia. We're going to move it. It's now going to be played in Denver, Colorado. Uh, the reaction, it was... Swift all over the place. Lots of people applauding uh, Major League Baseball for for standing up for you know minor, minorities, minority voters, uh, and like quote unquote like doing the right thing and, and being proactive about saying like hey you know if if you are going to be a state that you know believes in these certain things and and this is how like you want to conduct business in your state then we don't want to bring our business there and we would rather bring our business somewhere else and. Uh, then, of course, there's the reaction to that, which everyone, you know, on the right bashing MLB for uh, caving to the social justice warriors, the, the tiny minority of people that are upset about this on online and on Twitter, right? And MLB's just uh, kind of cowards and giving in to, you know, quote unquote, the mainstream media who's driving this, this, uh, this narrative that this is the new Jim Crow one. Hey, if you actually look at the provisions in the bill, there's... You know nothing racist about them, and MLB has is caved a bunch of cowards. Now I'm not giving my business to MLB. What what were your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I, uh, I, I. So I, I honestly I don't know that um, that it's like it to me was like was really that tremendous of a gesture, and if if only because. <laughs> only because my interest in baseball has waned over the years and i don't i don't know that that's fair sort of national sort of the national sentiment towards baseball but i think in general that i i applaud any organization or company that wants to to make a stand or take a statement on anything because you know at the end of the day it could potentially be harmful to their business i think you know they did not make this decision without you know what is our you know, who are our demographics? Who are, where are we trying to grow fans? Where are we not as worried about losing fans? And they, they're making a business decision at the end of the day. It, it, you know, for, for at this point, um, it aligns with like, you know, how I feel about the situation. Um, and, and yet, 
I I think it's interesting that like I think Mitch McConnell came out and he's like, you know, Republicans watch baseball too, and the MLB is I think it's just like stupid that they're doing this because you know they're going to lose a, a bunch of fans and. I think no doubt they may lose some fans, but they they may pick up some, and I think that they made that they definitely made that calculation before they made any decision. It, it, well put. It's a business decision, and I wish I do think that's the MLB was probably swayed by like the online outrage mob. There was elements of that in the way that this bill has been portrayed in the media, which I don't think is necessarily has been accurate. Uh, really, were swayed by that too. But like these are smart people that are running this business and while i wish that mlb hadn't pulled it out of georgia it's totally within their right to to do that as as a business entity and if you are upset by that and don't want to support mlb anymore it's totally within your right as a consumer not to support them anymore like it that the furor over it kind of like it kind of makes me chuckle where it's like it's it, it's a business they're doing it for business reasons they think ultimately it's going to help their bottom line their image when they're trying to grow amongst you know we've had they've had a problem growing amongst a younger group of people amongst minorities uh, hispanics blacks in particular like let me try to appeal this is going to be a decision that appeals to those demographics i yeah fine do that yeah and if you're you're a consumer if you're, you're like hey i'm outraged then don't support them anymore like this is the to me this is classic capitalism let's see if it's a good decision for mlb who knows yeah and i mean you know it is very similar to sort of the NFL's reaction to Colin Kaepernick kneeling um, in where I think 2015 or 16 when he when he started that you know it was it was kind of the opposite right we're going to close ranks and we're going to sort of get this guy out of the league because we think it is bad for our image and we you know we're worried about a certain demographic um, being turned off by this being part of the sport so it's always um Right. Like, I, I think that there's a calculus here. I think I am hopeful for what that calculus sort of portends for the like overall trajectory of society. Like, maybe not with specific regard to this bill. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that the reaction was perfectly warranted. But I think in general, like the causes that we are now sort of standing up for in, in this case, in, in sort of, you know, boycotting, hosting, the the emma that's not the right word but you know what i mean like moving the the all-star game from atlanta like i think that is kind of a long-term you know arc of history type of projection for where we are headed um in terms of what is going to be the common sort of the every man's like sort of thought on on issues like this like how are they going to fall on these lines on on whose side and so from that i think it signifies a good thing um for me yeah, and there's a couple interesting things about this. One, MLB, I think, took kind of a bullet for their players because it would have placed a lot of the players in awkward, uncomfortable situations where they would be asked questions over these next couple months where, are you going to go to Georgia participate in the All-Star game? And there probably would have been players that decided not to go for various reasons. And then, then it becomes like a player against player type thing. If you're going, are you making a statement? If you're not going, what, what statement are you making right And MLB just kind of took one for the team on that one and said, well, we're going to take this decision out of everyone's hands and we're going to protect our players, which is another reason I, I really respect it. And two, what's interesting is that the it was taken out of Atlanta, which I... Uh, it's only going to hurt really Atlanta and Atlanta's economy, which kind of funnily enough is overwhelmingly minority and democratic. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to hurt all of the, like, the 
you know, white, conservative, rural voters in Georgia, which is another thing that I don't think this obviously is more of a symbolic decision than anything. But if you actually look at like economically, who is this going to hurt? It's going to hurt all of these people that liberals, Democrats, whomever claim to help and represent. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly that aspect um, of it. And then it's going to Denver, Colorado, which is like, you know, it's a, well, it's going to Colorado, which yeah. is, is a different demographic. Very different <laughs> demographic there for 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 sure. I mean, I, I guess at, at the end of the day, the the statement and what it's trying to bring awareness to still stands. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's like a you know a short term benefit. But if we're talking about what is the purpose of this in the long run, um, I I don't. I don't necessarily see that as a reason, like not to to do it. I mean, I, I you know, it that kind of talking point make, gets a lot of traction on Fox News. I think another interesting point um, was that a lot of Georgia Republicans were trying to make the point that Colorado actually has like more restrictive voting uh, <laughs> sort of procedures than the state of Georgia, which I think was. Um, and they pointed to like the early voting window being two days longer in Georgia than it's like 17 days in Georgia versus 15 in Colorado. I thought that was very interesting because just on the, you know, just on the numbers, Colorado has the second highest, I think, behind Minnesota in terms of voter participation. I looked this up for the pod, so I actually know that I'm fairly confident in this number. Something like 76 to 77 percent of the voting eligible population, the VEP stat people look at a lot when it comes to elections um being so the national average is something like 66 percent colorado has 76 percent i think minnesota is only higher with 80 georgia is right around the national average at like 66 percent so whatever colorado is doing they are doing enough that more people are getting to the polls than in georgia yeah it just to that point it's interesting like the narrative thing where this has become georgia is this racist state and we've already kind of litigated all of these issues but what george is kind of pointing out is that like these laws this law that we just passed isn't any different or much different at all than laws that exist in states like delaware or connecticut or washington or all of these kind of like liberal bastions have very similar if not more restrictive laws and to that point like Kentucky just signed a bipartisan bill the other day. And what it did was the Republican-dominated legislature um, came together with the Democratic governor and they passed this new like election bill and expanded access to early voting. And now there's three days of early voting in Kentucky. And the media was all, look at this. This is, this is what every state should do. Look at this bipartisanship coming together to expand access to voting. And George is back here being like, are you kidding me? We have 14 <laughs> days of early voting. Kentucky has three now. And Kentucky's getting like lauded to the media and we're getting like pilloried. And so that's where narrative and and media does really play a big difference here because i'm not knocking kentucky for coming together and passing access to to expand voter access to the polls that's great but like if we just look at the bottom line georgia access to voting in georgia is still far more than a state like kentucky but you wouldn't know that if you just read certain headlines yeah and i mean you know for better or for worse georgia really does carry um a lot of the history of um you know the end of the civil war reconstruction all the way through to jim crow um and then you know from there beyond that to today and you know there are in in certain ways we can look at 
southern states and point to sort of you know what is the you know the gerrymandering and the redistricting like you know these certain political aspects that um that that folks point to and rightly so to say that like racism is alive and well here but i think a lot of that narrative sort of trickles away when we look at other states in other areas but it's still there and it's you know potentially less overt but it has the same um has the same consequence i think we'll talk a little bit about this when we dive into the to the mayoral discussion in our in our next in our next pod so if you know it's something to look forward to if folks are still listening yeah yeah. hang on um more good stuff coming but um but yeah that you know they have to live with their reputation um and people are going to and and like you said like the narrative is there right like when 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 we talk about georgia people are ready to hear a story about how is georgia being racist and so bam got them right here flip side you know they may be doing something that's actually better than what kentucky is doing but kentucky actually you know all right the story tells sounds a little bit different when we say it this way so um i think that's it it's important to keep in mind whenever we read these stories that we need to just remember like the unfortunately our newscasters have an agenda to tell a story that is going to resonate with people and these are the things that people are sort of primed to hear all right, so hopefully, if my uncle is listening, or for anybody out there that was caught between the the rock of Fox and the hard place of CNN, hopefully this you know, clarified some of what's going on in, in Georgia. Indeed. It's a mystery, I suppose, just how long this thing goes. But there'll be crowds and there'll be shows, and there will be light after. So we wanted to check in on where the United States stood in regards to vaccination efforts and and combating the coronavirus. And before we get into some of the the numbers, one of the things that Ricky alluded to earlier is that like, oh, things feel so normal is going to be the phrase of 2021. Uh, And it already kind of is. And like, for example, like I, my birthday was, happy birthday to me, my birthday was last week and I had a little party for myself as I often do. And there were like a lot of our friends came and it was the first time we had seen uh, a lot of our friends in a year in a lot of cases. Uh, in the backyard, outside. It, yeah, it was, it was, it was in the back, it was outside. Yeah, right. Uh, best practices. We were, uh, we were under the, the prescribed limit for Massachusetts and like Ricky said, it was outside, we were freezing, uh, but it was, it was outside. Uh but, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have done that a year ago. I wouldn't have done that six months ago. I wouldn't have done that three months ago. There's this some sense to me that, like, all right, we're kind of returning to normal. And I don't know if that's a product of it's been 13 months since this started, if it's a product of the weather is getting nicer and it feels like we can kind of be outside and life's a little bit more you know, normal, like we could maybe sit outside at a bar and have a beer or get a meal at a restaurant outside. Or I, I, I'm sure it's a combination of all of those things. But even like schools are largely going back at this point, which is great. And uh, sports are happening. Like March Madness felt very normal. Like all all of the professional sports are happening. A lot of youth sports are happening now, and it feels like it's it's over in a lot of ways. 
But the reality is that it isn't, and that cases in a number of places in the country and in the world are, are spiking. You look at a state like Michigan, for example, or um, a country like Germany, where like there are like continue to be huge spikes. And so, I, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around it, like philosophically, of this. On the one hand, it feels like the light's very much at close, not even at the end of the tunnel. That I'm close to the end of the tunnel here. And on the other hand, that this is something that's hasn't changed that much from a couple of months ago. It's just my maybe my personal feeling has changed about it. So uh, about 20% of the United States population is vaccinated. Massachusetts, I think, said about uh, 22% are fully vaccinated. I think like 38% have gotten at least one shot. Uh, and that's slightly higher than the national average. But the United States is largely in a good position. And you know, to the Biden administration's credit and also to the Trump administration's credit for getting the, the wheels in motion like the vaccinations are getting out there that every adult by the middle of april if not the end of may is going to have access to a, a vaccine if you know if, if he or she wants it uh which which is great uh, and, and that feels like it, it's coming but there are a number of kind of issues with that is now it's starting to come up in a couple of states i read recently uh i think it was in mississippi was the example but that there are now unused vaccinations where they, they've kind of for the people they made it eligible to every adult in that state and every like adult in that state that has wanted one has gotten one but it's still only like a quarter of the state like there's in mississippi's a really interesting example because two populations in our country that tend to be skeptical skeptical of this vaccination are conservative republicans and black voters and i'm not black voters but black people and uh mississippi is heavily black and heavily like white republican as well and so like there it's an unusual state but there are other states like that like oklahoma started offering their vaccinations to out-of-state people because they they can't get enough people in oklahoma to come get it so that's an interesting part where we know that we need at least 70 percent if not closer to 90 percent of this country to be vaccinated to get that like herd immunity where we're it doesn't appear that we're going to be close to that and then there's an, another thing where like i said the united states is about 20 percent vaccinated right now a lot of countries in the world are not going to hit 20% vaccination by the end of 2021 if if or that early or that high at all and we see the the danger of the virus right now is in the variants and where have they cropped up they've cropped up in the UK and South Africa and Brazil and India like this is a worldwide pandemic and we are rightfully i think focused on what's happening in the United States but even if we get United States herd immunity which that is kind of doubtful at this point it's we live in a global world and that doesn't mean that even if once we get to hear current immunity if we you know knock on we're able to get there that we're kind of out of the woods here so i i'm just curious on your take of where we are as a as a state as a country as a world with with the pandemic and vaccinations yeah i mean those are all um ex excellent points and some that sort of broader context is just it's very hard to keep in mind because you're constantly hearing that all right Maybe you heard 2,000 new cases today. Maybe you heard, all right, there, we vaccinated another 100,000 people. But what does it mean yeah. in the actual grand scheme of things? Like, where are we on the path to getting back to some semblance of normalcy? And I, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're the broader point that we don't live in a world that allows us to just think about what the end game for the U.S. is. Notwithstanding the fact that we have a ton of, I don't know why I'm using notwithstanding a lot today. Anyways, <laughs> I like that word today. It's a good that's, word. That's it's my good word, word of the day. Um, that, that, you know, we have issues and hurdles to overcome in the United States that 
by and large, like we're using vaccines here that we can only use in the United States because we have the infrastructure to keep them cold and to, you know, manufacture them and distribute them in the way that we are. And that, you know, the broader world is going to rely on the AstraZeneca and maybe this new Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Um, but that sort of, again, limits the, the number of vaccines. And we have, you know, close to seven, eight billion people that we're going to need to vaccinate before we can really put this thing somewhere in the in the rear view because we as you said live in a global a global world a global economy that relies on sort of the free movement of people and um yeah and that's definitely a, a scary prospect um to think about and hard to think about too as things start to seem a little bit more normal right it's just like mentally everyone's i think ready to just be done with this Unfortunately, like we don't necessarily we you can make our own decide. choices. We don't get yeah. to decide yeah, when it's yeah. when it's done. There are so many factors without like, outside of our control, and there are obviously certain things that we can do. And uh, I hope that everyone that is eligible for a vaccination, you know, signs up and, and gets one. I think that it helps not only you know not, not only you but everyone. The, the more people that get it, the more that we can be safe and hopefully return to normal. Uh, but it's just it's it's kind of an interesting spot mentally for. A year was all doom and gloom and everyone was being the vast majority of people were being safe and kind of respecting the the severity of the virus and the danger of the virus but it's in a weird spot now where people are ready to get back and some people are able to get back because they've gotten the vaccination but it's in a lot of ways nowhere close to done one other thing along the vaccination effort i thought was really interesting was that i read the other day and i don't know if you're aware of this but so in the united states we're, we're big on the let's get needy populations the two vaccinations that they need but in the uk they're trying to they're not doing two vaccinations even for like a pfizer or moderna that requires two they're just trying to get as many people one vaccination as possible i, don't know, I thought that was interesting yeah i i did not hear that i think that's an, that seems like an absurd uh, well their point was that like hey the first shot is is makes a big difference in order to mitigate as this as much as possible let's get everyone a first shot first and then we can start going back for two yeah, that's interesting. But all of like the medical science and like the observation, all of the data is based on like the two shots a certain period apart. And so like potentially they were saying that it, you know, it becomes 60% effective in the first month. Right. But all of those people ended up getting the second dose um, in the in the right allotted period. And I mean, it, also it goes to like, how do we gauge uh, effectiveness of those vaccines like we do these mass scale trials um, and then we essentially just look at who got who was positive who got a placebo and who got a vaccine right. um, so there is yeah and so there's just like a uh, potentially I, I, I don't not a not a gap there I think obviously you know we've been studying vaccines for a, a long period of time I think that is a I did not did not know that that was their approach I think that's just it's in, yeah, it's just interesting, and, and who knows? Like, well, like all of these things, it's somewhat novel, right? And everyone's just trying to do their, make the best with it, and yeah. coming up with their own solutions. I mean, we won't know who's quote unquote right or right, who was more right. right for a long time. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. All right, uh, but before we go, we wanted to acknowledge uh, a couple of passings yesterday. Um, Prince Philip, uh, the of, of England, died at the age of ninety nine yesterday, and also DMX died at the age of, of 50 and 
I'm kind of chuckling because it's it's funny to put those two together. I can't imagine like that there were many sentences over the last 50 years in which Prince Philip and DMX were uttered in the same sentence. But they are each significant in their own ways and in, in, in their passings. And it, we didn't feel right not acknowledging them. And so, Ricky, I'll, I'll throw it to you for for your thoughts and and uh, and reflections on either or both of their lives. Yeah, I uh, I'll be honest. I did not know that the Queen's husband was Prince Philip. I didn't understand that, like, dynamic yeah. because in in my very rudimentary understanding of a monarchy, yeah. a, a queen and a it king are king. married. Yeah. Queens and princes, I don't didn't quite follow that he was royal blood from a different line and, like, that. it's just kind of how it, how it works. Yeah. Um, so that it was i i honestly like i learned more about i think prince philip in his passing than i knew about in his life um so th- that was one part of it and then dmx um i <laughs> certainly someone who who i don't know if impactful is the right word but he played a large role in like in my formative years yeah um certainly screaming his lyrics uh you know or rapping along at at parties or you know or even just like when they first came out and i was probably like 14 or 15 um listening in my parents car and having my parents just look at me like i was absolutely insane but what have we done wrong yeah yeah exactly i'm just like barking like a dog at uh, (laughs) there's there's just nothing uh nothing better and that that style of rap has largely gone gone by the wayside but of course having grown up with it um is something that i i will treasure forever and it's i mean it's it's certainly sad i won't i won't say that he you know left in his prime he's kind of largely been out of the limelight and he in in his um 40s and and into his into his 50th year but certainly sad at at such a young age um and someone who i yeah just had a lot of uh lot of lot of good memories with yeah i don't want to downplay philip's death he's a really interesting guy with a really i would say cool story of born in greece to like you said uh, royal families there was I mean, so much intermingling and intermarriage amongst the european royal families that he was mostly related to like every royal family on the continent but it was uh once his i think it was his uncle who was king of Greece at the time after World War One, he resigned and then the whole family were refugees. He went to Germany. His four sisters stayed in Germany. He went to England when it was largely his mother unfortunately had some um, uh, mental issues and was sent to an asylum and he was largely raised by his grandmother in, in England. Uh, served in the British Royal Navy I believe in, in World War Two before marrying Queen Elizabeth. Uh, so really interesting story and, and definitely worth checking him out if, if you weren't aware of him. I think you know unfortunately he's had like a weekend at birdie situation these last couple of years where he's 99 and looked like he's been dead for years but um an interesting story too and he seemed like largely while not uncontroversial largely a, a pretty good guy who did a lot of really good things uh, so i don't want to let that pass and just kind of go unnoticed but if we're comparing the two there's no doubt that dmx hit me harder and harder than i expected i think like it's not like not like i was playing dmx's music every day anymore or some a guy that i thought about constantly but to your point like his music hit us at formative years it hit us when we were in middle school and like when we were in middle school dances like where the party at was everywhere right and that song still bangs and i I will say like 
maybe it was just of the time and you had and maybe it's just people that are like late 20s to late 30s that would really get how impactful dmx was but in my opinion he's got four of like the best rap songs i put him in like the top 100 rap songs of all time if i was ever making a list like rough riders anthem is an like the, the, the beat on that like once that drops everyone knows that song where the hood at Party up in here. There's X gonna give it to you. Like these songs are awesome songs, and by no means was DMX a great guy. Uh, he had a lot of issues, uh, but he was also a guy that was open about his struggles. Like, he had a hard childhood and suffered like um, a lot of abuse in, ch- in his childhood, and uh, was open about his struggles with addiction. Um, he spent time in jail and he spent uh, time in rehab, and you know he he died because of heart attacks suffered after you know the relapse and overdose and it, it's really sad in that situation uh he was he's he was just so human in a lot of ways but like if you go in for people that are older or younger and are kind of like why, why are you guys so upset over this go look at some, some of his performance like that woodstock 99 is like the classic one where he's he's got what seems like everyone in the world just barking at him and like shouting his lyrics back at him and i uh, i've been listening to his yeah obviously his music over the last 24 hours and yeah, I would have missed it. Like, I'd have, like, really distinct memories from him. And I know that I wasn't his, you know, like, a suburban white kid wasn't his, like, target audience. But I, like, remember distinctly in, like, hockey locker rooms. Just, like, everyone just, like, screaming his lyrics at each other. And I, those are memories that I have and associate very specifically with some of his songs. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's very sad to see him go. Yeah, I mean, not to, like, overstate uh, his impact. But I, I do think that a lot of you know that kind of music that was i mean we went to a private school but that was very prevalent in our in our you know seventh eighth ninth grade uh lives really you know we don't have a ton of this like cross-cultural um contaminant you know that's contamination not the right (laughs) word but like you know what i mean yes yeah yeah, cross-pollination whatever um we don't we don't have a lot of those avenues, but music was always one of those. Yeah. And that like early two thousands rap um, that did like he talked a lot about you know where he was from um, in his music. And even if you didn't really put two and two together there, like having these opportunities to listen to that kind of stuff really does you know broaden your perspective on how different people live and i think that you know before before all we're talking about are are money drugs and and hoes or bitches or whatever that was like a lot of what that kind of rap meant the good old days we're so old so i agree though 100 percent. yeah yeah and he was um and he was he was yeah definitely a character and and in a in a in a sad way one of those like a, a a reason to just like kind of revisit a lot of that music that i probably didn't really understand when i listened to it um but is you know take hit hits differently these days absolutely so uh rest in peace to both prince charles and, and dmx and you know um you know thoughts and prayers to the, their families and friends and all those sorts of things uh good to be back ricky and we will be back very soon indeed all right man until next time. Uh. Something new. Stop. Drop. Shut them down. Open up shop. Oh. 
try. Snitches wanna lie. The snitches wonder why. Snitches wanna die. All I know is pain. All I feel is rain. I cannot maintain with madness on my brain. I resort to violence. My killers move in silence. Like you don't know what I silence. New York killers are wild. My dogs is with it. You want it? Come and get it. Took it, then we split it. Damn right we did it. What the F you gon' do when we run up on you? Messing with the wrong crew. Don't know what we going through. I'ma have to show how easily we blow. Let me find out there's some more that's running with joke. Nothing we can't handle. Break it up and dismantle. Light it up like a candle. Just cause I can't stand it. Put my on tapes like you busting grapes. Think you holding weight and you haven't met the apes. Stop. Drop. Mind your business, lady. Nosy people get it too. When you see me spit at you, you know I'm trying to get rid of you. Yeah, I know it's pitiful. That's how killers get down. Watch my killers spit round. Make you suckers kiss round. Just for talking, clown. Oh, you think it's funny? Then you don't know me, money. It's about to get ugly. Whatever, dog, I'm hungry. I guess you know what that means. Come up off that green. Rob's against all ravine. Don't make it a murder scene. Give a dog a bone. Leave a dog alone. Let a dog roam and he'll find his way home. Home of the brave. My home. And yo, I'm a slave to my home, it's the grave I'm a pull papers, it's all about the papers Chickens caught the papers and now they want to rape us Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop Oh, no, that's how rough riders roll Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop Oh, no Get at me, dog, and a rip. But this one here, I flip. You can know when I kick. Gonna be some sticks. What was that look for when I walked in the door? Oh, you thought you was raw? Boom, not anymore. Cause now you on the floor. Wishing you never saw me walk through that door with that 4 4. Now it's time for bed. Two more to the head. Got the floor red. Yeah, that maggot's dead. Another unsolved mystery. It's going down in history. Because they never did to me. Because they can't get to me. Got to make a move. Got a point to prove. Gotta make them through, got them all like ooh. So to the next time you hear this dog rhyme, try to keep your mind on getting crime. Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop. Talk is cheap, motherfucker.